yeah, I, I do remember carrying the two-week-old, like flying down to North Carolina where JP was stationed and being there in the middle of the night watching all of the the service members getting ready to deploy in the middle of the night. And so it was this surreal event where you're standing there with all these bags and trucks are getting loaded and they're about to get in a bus and get to a plane and you don't know when you're going to hear from them again. Hello everyone, this is Paul Aronowitz, Health Sciences Clinical Professor of Medicine at UC Davis School of Medicine and host, producer, and engineer of the podcast Mountain Lions. This introduction is the same one I used for all of the Surviving Crisis series, so if you've already heard the intro, feel free to fast forward about 2 minutes and 30 seconds further downstream and skip it. I will not be offended, and in fact, I will never, ever know you skipped it unless you find me and tell me that you did that. Today, I have an interview for you to listen to in the Surviving Crisis series. The idea for this series actually came from a suggestion that my good friend, Dr. Mark Henderson, posed a couple years back for a meeting plenary session for the Academic Alliance for Internal Medicine. His idea was a simple one, and it was to have a panel of four to five members who would discuss loss, coping with loss and survival after loss. Unfortunately, there wasn't really any uptake on the idea, so we put it away, but it kept on nagging at me, all these important and amazing stories that might be of great help to other members in the organization. Fast forward about a year, and I posed the idea to the clerkship directors of Internal Medicine Council, of which I'm a member, and counselors were very enthusiastic in their support of the idea. But in this case, the conversations would be separate and in the form of podcasts. So I want to take this opportunity to thank Mark Henderson for the idea and the CDIM Council for their unabashed, enthusiastic support of the idea for these conversations. You're going to hear a bunch of stories on these podcasts, some so sad that you will, as I did, feel like your heart is being pulled from your chest, but all are inspiring in their own ways. You'll hear about a 13-year-old who literally was a key player in saving his physician father's life, and in another about loss so overwhelming that even as you hear about that loss, you will struggle to imagine how anyone could have survived it. You'll hear about racism. You'll hear about stumbling and falling and getting back up and pushing on. You'll hear a lot about family and how important family is in just about every kind of hard time that there is. And yes, you'll hear about love, because even though this is just another podcast, air quotes over just another podcast, and it's mostly been about medical education 
None of the podcasts you'll listen to don't have love come into play at one or multiple junctures. So if you're not a lover of hearing about love, stop this podcast now and go listen to the Curious Clinicians podcast, one of my current favorites, or the TED Radio Hour. A final note, I try to keep these podcasts to what I think is the ideal length for a podcast, about 30 minutes, but as you'll see, or hear anyway, some drifted up to as much as an hour. It was hard to edit down any of these stories after I'd sat, transfixed, listening to them. Hard to take much out of these interviews, but easy to take away a lot from them. Enjoy, and please have a good, safe, healthy day. Kathy, could you introduce yourself, where you grew up, went to college and medical school, and where you trained for residency? And I apologize, I don't know uh, if you did a fellowship, and what and where your position is now. So I'm Catherine Chrétien. I grew up in New Jersey, close to Princeton, New Jersey. Went to college at Brown University and then went to Johns Hopkins School of Medicine for medical school and for internal medicine residency. I did not do a fellowship. Immediately after that, I started work as an academic hospitalist at the Washington DC VA Medical Center. Um, And right now I am an associate dean for student affairs at George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences. Well, that must be a fairly big job, I'm going to imagine. How many students do you have enrolled there? We have about 180 per class, and I personally advise between 70 to 80 of of students in each class. Oh, wow. It's a lot, yeah. (laughs) That is a busy, busy job. Um, And uh, weren't you recently in a prominent leadership role nationally as well? I was recently president of Clerkship Directors in Internal Medicine, which was a really wonderful year. I'm now past president, and it's been great serving this organization that I consider my professional home. Excellent. Um, And since this becomes, I think, highly relevant to our conversation, could you tell us a little bit about your family, your your kids and your husband and what he does for a living? Yes, so my husband, Jean-Paul, we met in medical school, actually at Johns Hopkins. We met during orientation. So we're in the same class and I remember in orientation, I looked over and was like, hi, who are you? Uh, And that kind of started it off. So he went to the Naval Academy for college, and he's now a Navy physician. But he does mainly um, policy work. Um, He's preventive medicine trained, so he doesn't do clinical work. So we have three children. We have Pascal, who's nine, Jean-Luc, who is 13, and Jolie, who is 15. I thought perhaps if you began by describing the challenge that confronted you a few years back around your husband's deployment, um, that might be a good, good place to start. Well, I can't believe that it's been so long since that deployment because it was such a major part of our lives at the time. But it was actually, you know, around 2010, 2011 that this happened. Actually, it was 2011 because I can remember that easily. It was the year that my son was born our youngest. And so we knew he was going to get deployed to Afghanistan for a year. And we were able to prepare for that mentally. But meanwhile, I was pregnant. 
expecting the child, hoping that Jean-Paul would be there for the birth. Um, it ended up that Pascal was born, and two weeks later, JP, his nickname, deployed. So that was what was happening. Um, I think even though you have time to prepare, you know, it wasn't like six weeks before we were told he had to deploy to a war, wartime deployment, but still it was incredibly hard to, to think about him being away and not just being away, but in harm's way. And so that was a really trying time for us as a family. Um, yeah, I, I do remember carrying the two-week-old, like flying down to North Carolina where JP was stationed and being there in the middle of the night watching all of the, the service members getting ready to deploy in the middle of the night. So it was this surreal event where you're standing there with all these bags and trucks are getting loaded and they're about to get in a bus and get to a plane and you don't know when you're going to hear from them again. Um, and having the two-week-old with us and his mother too. And so his mother had come down, come down with us at the time and then we, we drove back home to D.C. And where were the two younger kids um, as you were at the airfield? That's a good question. So the two younger kids were with my parents so my parents picked up their stuff. They live in New Jersey, you know, where I grew up, and they moved in with us for a while um, during the deployment. And I don't know what I would have done without them there, actually, um, and the whole year of having them. I'm not sure how I could have gone through. I would have, but maybe not so well. But I think that's one thing of that year was realizing how lucky we were and how close we were to our family and how much they also sacrificed for our family during that time. And was JP away for the entire 12 months or did he get to come back at any point in there? He had a single two-week R&R is what they call it. And so we thought very carefully about when to time that R&R because we didn't want to spoil it. We knew it was our one time in 12 months that we could be together as a family, that he could see his third child, like what he looked like, and to be with him. So we really thought about when to do it. We thought later in the year, the better. Make it through most of the deployment and then have that two weeks together. So we timed it so it was two weeks around Thanksgiving. Wow. And were you also working at some point in there in that 12 months? I assume you must have been. Uh, well, I took maternity leave. So I took my standard 12-week maternity leave, which coincided with JP's leaving and, of course, that beginning time. Um, and after that, I went back to work full time. And again, it it was having my parents there was amazingly helpful and I really when I think back to that time just am so thankful for them and they put their their lives on hold to help us. How did would you say that having JP gone all that time affected your relationship with the two older kids? I mean you must have had to 
sort of do dual merge parental mom dad roles at some points you know disciplinarian i don't know which you know it's usually one parent is the soft one and the other one's the disciplinarian it seems like but i don't know if you found that we certainly did in in our lives but um did was it did it affect your relationship with your kid the older kids i know i don't know how much it did they were still pretty young they were like six and three you know seven and four at the time um, a lot of times it was just survival, you know, <laughs> like, you know, I'd put the, put one to bed and fall asleep in the bed, um, that, that kind of thing. Like we, we made do with, with what we could. Um, and thankfully they were young and resilient and they were not so affected by JP being absent. Cause I think they were too young to be, which was a blessing. You know, it was a blessing. I think it would be so much harder for me and for him if they were really upset during this time. But I think they were young enough that they did not realize their loss, but we we did. And for me and certainly JP as well, it was feeling the loss of all those moments that we couldn't share together. You know, we're trying to capture it and share it with each other, but it just felt like a vacuum of events that we couldn't be together to to experience like birthday parties and and first steps and and everything like that I felt that loss tremendously and I think it was probably much harder for him just not having his family at all around um at least you know we had each other but he was so far away I can't even imagine what I I guess (laughs) there might have been advantages to being so busy because you know, first you're on maternity leave, and then you go back to work full time, and then you come home and you have three kids to to to, to deal with. Um, did you spend a ton of time worrying about him, or were you just too busy, kind of surviving to to be able to find the time to worry? You know, the busyness and being preoccupied was helpful, and I did plunge into my work and academic pursuits and everything. I was still very productive during that time, partially, I think, to keep myself occupied. But whenever there was a, a lull in the day or some kind of reminder of what was happening across the country, I would feel fear and anxiety. And I think I never realized how much anxiety I experienced until that year. It was an ever- present feeling, um, you know, at different levels. And sometimes to the point of almost feeling like you're gonna have a panic attack, just heart racing and can't catch your breath because you think something might've happened um, to your loved one. And that could have come on just because I didn't get a phone call when I thought I was supposed to and just waiting and waiting for that phone call. It could have happened during the workday, you know, in between rounds. There were so many times where I felt that stress and anxiety and can now really empathize with my patients who go through that as well. But it was a very anxiety-ridden time. And how did you deal with that anxiety? Like when it would pop up between rounds or when you didn't get that phone call? What were some of your strategies for sort of tamping it down if you could? I think that's a really good question. 
I think just pausing and breathing, talking to people, I think having that connection and having others understand was so important. Yet you're in a situation where nobody quite understands and are not in the same position. It's not like I'm on a base with lots of military families and lots of partners are home waiting for their loved ones in the same state. I am a full-time physician and mom and doing things and nobody else around me is experiencing what I'm experiencing. And I think that that was really difficult. It was difficult to see the contrast of people living their lives normally, which they do because they're not experiencing this. But I'd get envious if I heard a friend say they went on a walk with their husband and they did this. And it was that that contrast too that was difficult and feeling very alone. I think the parallels of patients who are going through such struggle, like maybe the hospitalized patients that we take care of, and you know they're struggling, but we only skim the surface of that anxiety and terror and what's happening and maybe we don't fully understand. I think it's a similar feeling where you have this story and you have such deep emotions running through. You wish people asked you about it and you wish they understood. And sometimes you can get at it and sometimes there's there's people that understand and they can see it on your face or they ask you about it. And other times you would never be able to express that unless you sought someone out. And I think that's something that I took from that and took it to my patients in asking them and really paying attention, whether they had something they needed to share, whether they needed someone to witness their suffering with them, um, just to be there. And I think that really was highlighted during that time for me. Sort of a little bit of a tangent, but have you been um, on your teams when you've been uh, attending, have you had COVID patients on your service? I've taken care of some COVID patients, not many. Because I, I find that that, as you're describing that uh, sense of patients needing to be connected with when their families can't come in, you know, that strikes me as a situation where you don't, you'd feel that even more, you know, speaking, you know, to current events right now. Yeah, I agree. I think there's definitely parallels there um, in a very visible way of being isolated versus kind of invisible way of being isolated. And what other coping mechanisms did you employ during this time other than trying to keep as busy as you could and take care of your kids? Um, what what other strategies did you use? So I had one, one little strategy that maybe sounds strange, but I had a year-at-a-glance calendar, like one of those just on a page, the whole calendar laid out in months, and... I had a ritual and developed these rituals. So my ritual was at the end of each day, right before bed, I was allowed to cross out that day. And it was something that I focused on getting through one day. You know, can I get through this one day? And then I'd cross it out. And I wouldn't look too far ahead because that was way too overwhelming of how long we had to go on like this. But I could do a day and sometimes... I would get adventurous and circle an upcoming important day, like a birthday or something a week ahead. And I'd say, like, okay, it's this many days till that 
that day, but it was literally counting down the days and one at a time and only doing at the end of the day, like I got through it, I reward myself with this. One other thing is humor. And I used to write a humor column. I used to write humor blogs and I still enjoy humor writing, although I don't really get to show that on Dean's Letters these days or, or other things that I write. Yeah, no, no humor there, but I used to be very involved in writing humor. And I used to see my days that were so hard in the lens of humor and a sitcom. And I would come home from work exhausted, come in the door and my dad would be there. And maybe there's some kind of crazy action going on or some mess. It was mayhem and he's cracking open a beer and it's five o'clock in the, in the evening. And it just struck me as funny. It was a sitcom. It was like, my life is a sitcom. And I used to hear the laugh track sometimes. And that was a coping mechanism with humor. It's like, this is, this could be funny in the future. <laughs> but probably wasn't then. <laughs> or maybe it was at the moment you thought of it as being a sitcom. I still want to write a sitcom. I have an idea. And that's that's one thing that I'm collecting material for. Certainly sounds like where you would start for that. So one other sort of, if you took it to a, a bigger picture perspective, what are your sort of main sort of life lessons that you took away from that year? I think one life lesson is really just how strong each of us can be if we're placed in that situation. I wouldn't have you know, chosen that situation to be an example of how strong I can be, but I was forced to. I was in that position and I had to make it work and I made it work. And so coming out from that year intact as a family, closer to, closer to one another than ever, and just strong as a unit, I mean, felt like I could do anything after that. I can handle anything. And so seeing what you can handle, rising to that challenge, and then things just can't compare to that. Like that, it's not as important. And then the other thing was the perspective of what is important in life. Like what is important to worry about? And I still sometimes worry about things that are not rising to the level of I think it should you know I I get in that trap sometimes but I think back to that time and what were the things that I was truly worried about and it puts things in perspective like what matters in life and has that been helpful that perspective during COVID well I have to say that even though quarantine and, and being isolated at home is hard for everyone and losing that interaction, I'm always thinking, oh my gosh, I got to be with my family. <laughs> like this, this is so amazing. And I don't take that for granted at all. Like it's a gift to be with people you love. And I try not to forget that. And that year really taught us how much of a gift that is and not to take that for granted. So I guess it has helped you that perspective because you yes if anything it's that sort of silver lining in in the in in the covid pandemic for you guys it's been a great family time yeah what was your 
if you know, what was your parents' perspective on the year? Like, were they like, JP walked in the door and they're like, we're out of here, back to New Jersey. Um, or were they kind of sad that their major bonding time with your kids ended at that juncture? It was more of the latter. They became such a fixture in our lives and the kids and theirs that after JP returned and they moved back to New Jersey, they kept visiting often on the weekends, driving down. They could not be away. They were in withdrawal. <laughs> and so like the visits were so frequent compared to before. They missed them so much. Uh, and then I think a year later, they moved down to live near us. And they now live 15 minutes away. Oh, interesting. So maybe that was partially enticement for them to move down closer to you in D.C. Apparently it was. And the fact that we didn't drive them away is, I think, a testament to, <laughs> to our family. Well, um, you've certainly described um, your experience. I'm sure it's just like the surface because it was 12 months that your husband was deployed in Afghanistan in a war zone with you with three kids and a newborn, including a newborn, and your full-time job. But are there any other sort of thoughts you have for our listeners to describe about the experience? Um, as you know, this has been a super tough year for everyone in some way or other. Um, but uh, any words of wisdom that you might have, I'm sure they would appreciate. I think that there's always good things that come out of hard things. And it's your perspective of looking for those and making the most of those and never taking for granted the blessings you have. When you ask about my parents, one of the, what the things that kept us going, all of us going, was that newborn. And I think things happen for a reason and... I'm someone of faith and and believe in God, but I I do believe that God made our third child like the best baby <laughs> there was. Like, he was an angel. He was just this joy. He brought my parents joy every day that they were caring for him. And when I'd come home and see him, he hardly cried. He was just a delight. Like no other baby was like him. And I really think that was deliberate. Like he brought us peace and joy during that, that year. So I, I think looking for the good things, the blessings, what is there to help you is something to help you through these times that are hard. The light in the dark. Well, Kathy, I want to thank you for, for joining me today on Mountain Lion, and I know that everyone is going to enjoy listening to this podcast and certainly learn a lot from your uh, experience, as you have, for sure. Thanks so much for having me and having this series. I think it's really important, and I look forward to hearing everyone else's stories. Thanks for listening to this podcast, everyone, and we're going to go out of here on Power of Two by the Indigo Girls, one of JP and Kathy's favorite songs. 
And please stay tuned for the next Surviving Crisis podcast interview. I hope you enjoyed this one and have a great day. I'm